Well, welcome back, everyone, to the Spooky Soup Podcast. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tessa. It's been a while, and to be honest, that's my fault. I've, I think I've just been on this, I think I've just been, like, too busy. <laughs> it's not completely your fault, because I've been sick. You've been sick. I've been crazy busy with work and, and life and moving and stuff that we just, yeah. Well, I apologize for, for this, but I have some good Reddit stories for you. woo well, before we begin, anything you want to mention before I dive into the Reddit stories? Besides, like, maybe Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. And <laughs> and maybe uh, go see Thanksgiving the movie. I saw it, my wife and I saw it on opening night. And I got to say, it's amazing. If you love the Scream movies or just a good classic slasher, go check it out. It's perfect for the Thanksgiving holiday, 100%. Yeah, I'm excited to see it. I can't wait. Okay. Uh, well, if you are ready, I will dive right in. Do it. Okay, so I have three stories today. And uh, this first one's a little bit shorter, and then the other two are a little bit longer. Uh, but this first one was posted by you slash Dungeon Marshall in r slash scary stories. And it is titled, But First, Coffee. Philip likes coffee exceedingly. No sugar or cream for Philip, please. He prefers his black. The stronger, the better. Philip and Sonia's house smelled like a Starbucks all the time. Signs hung on the kitchen wall with funny expressions like, Coffee, because murder is wrong. And, Give me the coffee, and no one gets hurt. Three cups before leaving home for work. One at lunch, one immediately after, and still another two at supper. If Sonia prepared dessert, another cup to compliment it. That had been Philip's routine for years. It was early morning. The sun had not peaked above the horizon. Philip sat at the kitchen table in the dark, sipping from his cup of freshly brewed goodness. There was a smile of contentment on his face. Sonia couldn't sleep. She had been up all night crying, but Philip didn't know that. He poured his second cup and breathed in its rich aroma as Sonia made her way downstairs and into the kitchen. She switched on the light. Her scream woke the neighbors. Yesterday was Philip's funeral, but who could expect him to rest well after drinking all of that coffee? Oh, that's so good. <laughs> <laughs> that is so good. Good little twist there. <laughs> this, uh, this last one I have for you. This one was posted by u slash ordinary dash B 8643 in r slash scary stories and it is titled ghost in my bedroom it was a small unsuspecting bedroom decorated with soft purple walls white trim and a built-in with drawers on on either side the full-size bed sat high in the center of the room perpendicular to a small crowded closet and a single window with just enough space to walk around the room was nestled on the corner of a second-story brick house the window overlooking a gentle rolling hill carved into two by a two-lane road. Behind the house, within 50 feet of the sloped, uneven backyard, lie a dense forest that stretched on for miles. Inside this small room, I found refuge. I was a typical teenager, rebellious, moody, and given frequent conflict with my family, I preferred to be alone. Each night, I would retreat into my room, shut the lights, and dial into my laptop. 
The laptop was merely a vessel for a hobby that I was indulging in. Inspired by a film class, I began watching all kinds of movies, both old and new, from the comfort and solitude of my bed. In that dark room, the world seemed to melt away as the screen danced with images of other worlds. Their stories distracted me from the chaos and emotion that simmered inside of me. Weeks passed and a routine began to take hold. Many times after leaving the room for a bathroom break or a quest for the perfect snack, I'd discover my cat, Emmy, must have snuck in behind me. She was a short-haired black cat, impossible to see in the dark behind the screen, but I could feel her jump onto the bed and settle into the corner. One particular night, I retired early, and it was not long into my second film before I felt a familiar weight at the edge of the bed. Smiling, I shifted myself to give her room and nestled back into the sheets, but was abruptly startled by my door whipping open. My mom stared into the room, looking visibly confused. Did you just walk into your room? She asked me. No, I responded hesitantly. I've been in here for a couple hours. She took several paces into the room, looking around the edges of the bed and pressed again. Do you have a friend over? No, it's just me and Emmy in here. Why, what's wrong? She turned on the light, and I sat up and looked down on my bed to see a large indent still creased from the weight of her, was empty. I looked to both sides of the room, but she isn't there. Puzzled, I looked back at my mom to see a fearful look in her eyes. I, I watched a girl walk into your room. I saw her in the hallway. Are you sure it wasn't you? No one is in here? I'm sure, Mom, I answer her. Fear began bubbling up deep inside of me, but I swallow hard to try to force it back down. Okay, never mind then. My mom says dejectedly and closes the door as swiftly as she opened it. Stunned, I sat quietly in the darkness, illuminated solely by the dim light of my computer. The energy of the room seemed to have shifted. It no longer felt comfortable and safe. I felt scared. Who could she have seen, I wondered. Was it real? Or a trick of the eye? And where did Emmy go? My stomach twisted with anxiety, unsure of what to believe. I took a deep breath and pressed play on the laptop. This will help keep my mind off things, I thought to myself. Ten, maybe twenty minutes go by and I feel the familiar weight press into the edge of the bed. Pausing the movie, I sit up and whisper, There you are. As I begin to reach for her, my hands pat around the blanket, but I don't feel her. I climb out of the bed to turn on the light when I suddenly realize that my door is closed. She couldn't have gotten in. Eyes wide. I dart to the light and switch it on to find the indent slowly leaving the bed. Emmy, my cat, is not in the room. Chill seemed to dance across my skin, giving rise to a sea of goosebumps as the realization seeped in. In an instant, I shut the lights back out. Diving back into bed, I slammed my laptop shut and pulled the sheets over my head. I squeezed my eyes shut as I heard my bed creak under the weight of it. Turning my back to the edge, I, I willed myself to sleep. It can't hurt me if I don't give it energy, I told myself. My blood ran cold as I felt a hand on my shoulder, tugging me, beckoning me to look at it. The grip seemed to grow stronger, and from the corner of my eye, a dark figure towered over the bed. I whispered over and over for hours for it to leave, that it is not welcome here. I whispered until exhaustion won the war versus fear, and the world went still. It was the last night I ever stayed in that small purple room.
Oh, that's scary. That's like one of my worst fears as a kid was that I had a ghost in my room. Mm-hmm. Just watching you from the corner? Yes. Yep. <laughs> in our haunted basement? <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, when it's 3 a.m. and your pile of laundry in the corner starts to look awfully like someone squatting down. But it is an actual person? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Or a ghost, at least. Typical Tuesday. Sure. Okay. Um, well, I hope I uh, got you guys spooked and ready for Tessa's story. Also, just want to say real quick, any um, any images that we are associated with our stories today, we will post those on our Instagram, and you can view them there. And if you would like to, you can send in a story to us. You can write in. The stories can be fake. They can be true. As long as they're spooky, we would love to read them on the podcast. You can DM those to us on our Instagram or email them to us at SpookySuitPodcast801 at gmail.com. And I just want to say that the story has some pretty good pictures associated with it. So I highly recommend checking us out on Instagram so that you can see them. Ah, yeah. So I recently read an incredible book by Robert Scott called The Girl in the Leaves. And it's a true crime book that goes into great detail of the story that I'm about to tell you. Apple Valley is a beautiful, lush town in Ohio that borders the gorgeous Apple Valley Lake. It's a picturesque place where everyone knows everyone, and if you're visiting, it might be safe to say that it feels like home. As of 2020, Apple Valley had a population of 5,352 people. This quaint town boasts a golf course, lake views, shoreline properties, a pub, a Dairy Queen, a movie theater, acres of forest, and above all else, a close-knit community. On November 10th, 2010, just 13 years and 10 days ago as of recording, that small town would be terrorized by one of the most gruesome, horrific crimes that I have ever studied. Our story starts with Matthew Hoffman. Matthew, on all accounts, was a good neighbor, but he could be strange and, albeit a little bit off-putting at times. Matthew was 31 years old and was utterly obsessed with trees. When I say obsessed, I mean obsessed. A neighbor described Matthew as being friendly and a little reserved, but she witnessed him on countless occasions climbing the trees and sitting in their branches watching the people below go about their days. Matthew was known to leave his door unlocked so the neighborhood kids could come and go as they pleased, and he would climb the trees with the kids and teach them how to navigate the trees. The same neighbor recalled leaving out food so all the little adorable squirrels in the neighborhood would come and eat, but then she found out that Matthew would capture the squirrels and stick them in his freezer so he could eat them later. One day after an explosive breakup with his live-in girlfriend, everything changed about 31-year-old Matthew. He became erratic and frankly scary. This is a grown man. This is a grown man. Hanging out in trees? Yep. Which, I mean, I like hanging out in trees, but... Oh, sure, I still... It's been years. (laughs) Yeah, but I'm not just, like, in a tree. Just watching. Just watching kids. Right. Or whatever. Or letting them come to your house, and you're just this 31-year-old guy with no kids around or anything. Yeah, that's weird. Mm -hmm. Matthew was no longer the friendly, weird man the neighborhood kids knew him as. 
He was the shut-in who loved the trees and froze his squirrels. It's worth noting that Matthew had a questionable past. In his 20s, he landed a job as a plumber's helper in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, working on newly constructed condos. Matthew really enjoyed being in places he shouldn't be. It's like he got a thrill out of it. So he would break into the condos he was working on after hours and hang out, watch TV, and steal stuff. Eventually, he got paranoid that he would be caught because his fingerprints were all over the place. So what did he do instead of simply quitting his job and skipping town? He set fire to the condos. Of course, it was easy for the cops to figure out who caused the fire, and Matthew spent time in prison because not only did he break into the condos, steal stuff, trespass, and burn the place down, he set the condos on fire knowing very well that next door the condos were filled with occupants. He risked their lives because he said he figured they'd just see the fire and leave even though it was in the middle of the night and they would be sleeping. After prison, he went to Apple Valley, Ohio, which, side note for all the parents listening, please do not let your kids play at the strange man's house. Please <laughs> do your research on the people who move in next to you. I'm not saying do an in-depth analysis, but please, for your safety, at least look them up to see if they've committed violent crimes or if they're on the sex offender registry. It could save yourself so much heartache if you act before anything even has a chance to happen. On the night of November 9th, 2010, Matthew parked his car and trekked a few miles to observe a very particular house around midnight. Matthew knew that this house had issues with its garage door and it wouldn't shut all the way, leaving just enough of a gap at the bottom for someone to shimmy underneath it. This little house sat across the street from a patch of woods where Matthew was completely in his element among the trees. Clad with his sleeping bag, he spent the night there, and in about nine hours, he could get back to his old ways and break into a place where he shouldn't be. So he hunkered down for the night, waiting in the moonlit shadows cast by the home across the street. Now, the next morning, November 10th, 2010, started like any other day for Tina Herman and her two kids from her previous marriage, 13-year-old Sarah Maynard and 11-year-old Cody Maynard. Tina had the morning off so she and her friend Stephanie Sprang could go apartment hunting. Tina and her husband Greg were planning to separate soon, and it's important that you all know that Greg had to leave for work super early that morning to go to Target Distribution Center around 3 a.m., and he planned on staying the night out of town the next night. Sarah and Cody left for school that November morning, and around 9.30 a.m., their mom, Tina, went grocery shopping. Matthew, having spent the night in the woods, was watching with his beady little eyes as a home emptied one by one, and aha! Per usual, the garage door didn't shut all the way down. Now was his chance. He shimmied through the gap and let himself into the empty home, walking room to room and soaking in the dopamine rush that was being somewhere he wasn't supposed to be. About three hours later, though, Tina came home. What happened next has been pieced together through thorough blood splatter pattern analysis, a splotchy recounting from Matthew himself, and evidence collected from that quiet home in its little patch of the woods. When Tina entered her home, she was rushed by Matthew, and she didn't have much of a fighting chance against his large frame. He grabbed Tina and dragged her to the bedroom where he threw her on the bed. 
He pulled out his hunting knife and proceeded to stab Tina again and again. It wasn't the stab wounds that killed her, however, but an autopsy later revealed that it was the deep, 14-inch long vertical slice growing from her chest to her lower, lower torso that killed her. Yo, what? Matthew just continued stabbing after delivering that final slice. I can't even imagine the absolute terror that Tina experienced in her final moments. I'm sure all she could think about were her two kids who would be home soon from school. As Matthew was standing over Tina, a door opened in the house. Stephanie sprang, Tina's friend, walked in through the unlocked door because they were set to go apartment hunting together in a little bit. Stephanie must have heard a commotion coming from Tina's room and went to check on what was going on. The sight of Stephanie shocked Matthew because he didn't know anyone else was in the house. He turned and chased her into Sarah's room where he attacked her and delivered many stab wounds. She died almost instantly after stab wound number two. After brutally killing both Tina and Stephanie, Matthew dragged their corpses to the bathroom where he dismembered each at the joints in the bathtub. And because the family dog wouldn't stop barking, Matthew killed and dismembered it too. Now, dismemberment isn't an easy task. It's quite a process if you want to do it tactfully. And of course, no matter how well you do it, there's bound to be an extremely hard mess to clean up. And for someone filled with the rush of just murdering two people and a dog, it's going to be hard to do things in a clean manner. So, plenty of helpful evidence was left behind. Time ticked away as Matthew was busy in the bathroom. That was until he heard the sound of the front door open. It was Sarah and Cody coming home from school. Sarah recalls walking in the door that day. She said it was odd because her mom wasn't there to greet her at the door like she always did. That's when she looked down and noticed blood on the ground. Concerned, both Cody and Sarah called out to their mom. The footsteps they heard barreling down the hallway were not those of their mom, but those of a strange man dressed in black and drenched in blood. Matthew lunged for the kids and Sarah managed to dodge his grasp and sprint to her bedroom. Young Cody, on the other hand, tried to make a run for the front door. He only got about two steps forward when Matthew plunged his knife into the back of his head. And it's believed that Cody was dead before he even hit the floor. Matthew then stabbed him 12 more times. Sarah didn't see any of this because she had dashed to her bedroom and slammed the door shut. She pulled out her cell phone and as she was dialing 911, Matthew burst through the door and raised a knife to stab her, but something in him made him pause and he dropped his hand. We'll probably never know why he decided to spare Sarah, but he didn't kill her. Instead, he hauled her to the kitchen floor where she laid tied up for hours. He made her stay there while he finished dismembering her mom, Tina, Stephanie, Cody, and the dog in the bathroom. He then placed their remains in black garbage bags and he threw the bags as well as the blindfolded and bound Sarah in the back of Stephanie's Jeep. He would later transfer everything to his own car, leaving the Jeep behind. Eventually, he brought Sarah inside of his own house, and upon removing her blindfold, 13-year-old Sarah witnessed an insane sight. 
The walls of Matthew's home were covered in nonsensical drawings. One in particular was a drawing around the bathroom faucet of a man, and where his mouth would be, the faucet was protruding. The rooms were lined with hundreds of grocery bags stuffed full of leaves, and the floor had a thick layer of crunchy leaves on it, too. Matthew brought Sarah down to his frigid basement, where he tied her up again and tossed her onto a bed made of leaves. He had collected bags and bags full and had continued to empty them all over the concrete floors. This bed of leaves is where Sarah would be kept for four days. Matthew still had to get rid of the bodies, so he left Sarah there in the dark, freezing room where all she could think about was where was her mom and why didn't Cody come with them? Sarah recounts her time in the basement as torture. Over the next four days, she would shiver for hours, stuck on top of inchy, itchy, crunchy leaves. The only food she had was a bowl of milk and cereal, but the milk was so sour that she couldn't stomach it. Matthew offered her the squirrels from his freezer, but she declined his generosity. Matthew also assaulted Sarah during this time, and I won't go into detail, but you can guess what happened. Now you might be thinking, was anyone looking for Sarah? When Tina didn't show up for her afternoon shift at Dairy Queen on November 10th, her manager Valerie grew concerned. Tina was very reliable, and this was not at all like her. After many unanswered calls and texts, Valerie called the cops and asked them to do a welfare, welfare check, which they did twice that night, but no one answered the door and nothing seemed out of the ordinary, so the home went unchecked. Tina didn't show up for her shift again the next day, and Valerie had enough. She knew something was seriously wrong. She and the concerned boyfriend of the missing Stephanie Sprang, whom I mentioned earlier, drove to the house to do a check themselves. Valerie removed a window screen and entered the quiet home. Inside, she saw puddles of blood, blood up the walls, and reddish drag marks leading to the bathroom. She got out of there and called the cops. Now, can you imagine what it's like walking into that? It's got to be awful, because not only are you seeing the blood and your mind starts to fill in the gaps of what could have happened, but you also never know if the killer's still there. It's something you never wish on anyone to see. No. That's awful. I would not want to live after that. I can't <laughs> That would be awful. Fathom what they were thinking, especially with their thoughts of like, okay, well, there's blood, but whose blood is that? Are they okay? Probably not, because they're not here. Right. And if Tina and her kids aren't answering the phone. Mm-hmm. Oh, and by this time, I forgot to mention, um, they found out that the kids hadn't gone to school either. So Valerie knew that something was super wrong. Yeah, yeah. Over the next few days, the community of Apple Valley came out in droves to comb the woods for anything that could bring about some answers. Keep in mind, only a select few people saw the blood pools inside the home, and as far as the community knew, Tina, Stephanie, Cody, and Sarah were all just missing people. Those who saw the blood knew that it was unlikely they'd find anyone left alive. Inside the home, Detectives discovered that motor oil had been poured over a lot of the bloodstains in what, in what looked like an attempt to possibly burn the evidence. And in all of that oil, 
they found shoe prints, some big, some small. The size of the smaller prints matched the size of the shoes left behind in Sarah's bedroom, and that indicated that she had walked out of the crime scene with someone much larger than her. This put even more pressure on the cops, and they knew the clock was ticking. Sarah Maynard was quite possibly still alive. In the garage, detectives found what one would call a typical idiot murderer's Walmart grocery haul. You know those memes where someone's like, I went to Walmart today and I needed duct tape, tarps, and rope for some yard work, but I didn't want the cashier to think I was a murderer, so I also bought some corn. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, Matthew ain't that smart. (laughs) Yeah, I can tell. Detectives found a Walmart bag containing a receipt, some tarps, and an open box of heavy-duty trash bags. I want to pause here for a second and examine this bag. Matthew Hoffman argued that the murders of Tina, Stephanie, and Cody were not premeditated, but that of a burglary gone wrong. He claims he was scared of getting caught, so he did what his condo burning to get rid of the evidence instincts told him to do, and that was to kill whoever walked in on him and burn it all down. But, I ask, wouldn't a burglar be in and out as fast as possible? Why didn't he take anything? He didn't take any of Tina's jewelry, none of the electronics. He simply sat there waiting for three hours. Yeah, there's no way. Yeah, he knew what he was doing. And he had watched the house enough to know that the garage door didn't shut, so he possibly knew who lived there. Oh, yeah. Also... Why did he need multiple tarps for a burglary? I don't think that's in your typical tool belt if you're trying to rob somebody. So that to me just screams premeditated. No, it's like the old timey cartoons where they take a bandana, put their stuff in the middle of it, and then bring all the corners up to the center <laughs> and tie a knot, stick a, you know, oh, put a stick, stick through it. it. <laughs> that's what he was doing with the tarps. Just a really oh, big I see. version just like of that. For the big screen TV and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. Because yeah. <laughs> he's obviously not smart. Duh. <laughs> The cops were able to check that Walmart receipt and match the printed date and time, as well as items purchased from the store's footage of Matthew Hoffman making that very same purchase. They then watched him walk to his car and were able to identify who owned the car from the license plate. They had their guy and they knew exactly where to find him. They wasted no time busting down the door to Matthew's house. They were met with the sights and smells of hundreds of thousands of rotting leaves. Down in the basement, they discovered a weak and disoriented Sarah tied in her bed of leaves. And the first thing she told detectives was, I think I'm late for school. I better get going. (laughs) They arrested Matthew and brought him in for questioning. They still needed to find Tina, Stephanie, and Cody. Days passed, and with no luck from the community search efforts, Matthew eventually caved. In exchange for taking the death penalty off the table, he wrote a 10-page confession letter and promised he'd tell the cops where to search in the woods for the remains of Tina, Stephanie, Cody, and the dog. Given this new information, the detectives drove to the Cocosing Wildlife Nature Preserve to find where Matthew said he hid the bodies. After reading about where Matthew hid the remains, I truly believe that the search efforts would have never found the bodies. He had what is quite possibly one of the most shocking 
yet genius places I've ever heard of. His directions led police to a patch of woods where there stood a towering 60-foot tree that was completely hollow on the inside, but you wouldn't know that looking at it, and it was 60 feet tall. <laughs> Imagine 60 feet tall. Wow. Okay. They had to bring in a tree cutter to cut a square window into the massive tree trunk so they could retrieve the black heavy-duty trash bags that were tossed inside of its depths. Somehow, Matthew had climbed the 60-foot tree with the hundreds of pounds of remains and tossed them inside. All three people, Tina, Stephanie, and Cody, as well as the dog, were found inside the tree. And autopsy reports revealed that they had experienced the unthinkable. It was evident to the chief medical examiner that the dismemberment technique used displayed a certain level of sophistication one might not know. So that that kind of busts his robbery. Exactly. Story. Nice try, dude. Matthew was sentenced to life in prison. He's currently at the Toledo Correctional Institute in Ohio where he will spend the rest of his miserable life being visited by his mom and likely wishing he could climb a tree. I'm happy that he'll never be able to do the one thing he enjoyed ever again. What a prick. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm going to beat the shit out of him. <laughs> oh man, wow. And everyone in his family has disowned him except Good. for his mom. She visits him regularly and in an interview, she states that poor Matthew has panic attacks in prison. Well, boo-hoo, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I hate enabling parents who think that their child could do no wrong, yet their child does everything wrong. <laughs> At his sentencing, loved ones of the victims were able to read victim impact statements. And I'm proud to say that they did not hold back. Sarah Maynard told Matthew that she isn't afraid of him and will never be afraid of him. Bill, the brother of Tina, so Sarah's mom, had a statement that I absolutely love, so I'm going to read it to you. He said, You are a coward, a real piece of shit. I can only hope and pray that God takes you out soon. I hope you rot in hell, you be treated and tortured as you have done to our family member. If only the law would allow us, my brothers, Larry and I, would enjoy the opportunity to dismember you alive. Same. Yeah, I love when victim impact statements don't hold back, and kudos to Bill. I hope you get the opportunity to do that to Matthew one day. <laughs> if Sarah Maynard's story tells us anything, it's that there's power in community. The local Dairy Queen where Tina worked ran a deal where for every blizzard sold, they would donate $1 to the victim's families. 2,532 blizzards were sold during that week. That's almost half the population of the entire Apple Valley coming out to buy blizzards. That's amazing. Isn't That's it? That's so cool. A candlelight vigil was held at the Apple Valley Lake, and a memorial was set up at Tina's home, where several baseballs were left with messages of hope and love in memory of Cody, who was a stall baseball athlete in the making. Not to mention that hundreds of thousands... Sorry, this story. <laughs> it makes me cry. It's so good. Yeah. Not to mention that hundreds of thousands of volunteer hours were put in by the community to find the four missing people in frigid November weather. Sarah and her dad set up the Healing Hearts Memorial Fund, which provides 
<laughs> sorry. This story uh, made be, me cry when I was reading no, it. No, don't be sorry. This is, it's heartbreaking. It's awful, awful, yeah. awful. So Sarah and her dad set up the Healing Hearts Memorial Fund, which provides funding and assistance for victims of violent crimes. Sarah is now an avid advocate for victims of abduction. In 2019, she, as well as Elizabeth Smart and five other women who have survived abduction, appeared on television in a special where they told their stories and gave advice to help Jamie Kloss process her her horrific abduction that took place just the year before. I want Sarah's, Tina's, Stephanie's, and Cody's stories to be remembered as one of unrelenting love. If anything, it's a testament to the strength of community and a warning for all who plan to do the unthinkable. Amazing story. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was so good. And man, that... Uh, yeah. I mean, Tess is holding the book right now. And are, have you finished it? I have. It's 306 pages. <laughs> um, but yeah. Okay. Uh, so the, w- the, w- the book is called what again? The Girl in the Leaves okay. by Robert Scott. And the really cool thing about it is that Sarah and her dad helped him write it. Oh, no way. So it's words from them. Sweet. Okay. Sorry to get all emotional on y'all. I've never done that before, but that's a first. I cried so many times reading this book. It was so good. Yeah, sure, sure. Oh man, um, and very like, ah, I don't know. I'm like kind of speechless right now. Just sorry. Just <laughs> an insane story, and yeah, um, I love that the community came together. I know. I love that. That part about the blizzards mm-hmm. made me cry oh, yeah. <laughs> when I read it. I was just like, "Absolutely, are you kidding me? That's half the population in the town. Like, could you imagine where we grew up if half the population came out to do that? Yeah. Insane. Wild. Okay. Well, I'm excited to uh, see the pictures. And once again, we'll post those on our Instagram. But other than that, do you have anything else for us today? That's it for me. I hope that all of you go and listen to some ear bleach after that story <laughs> go look at some uh go look at some videos of some puppies you know. yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right guys we'll scare you in the next one stay spooky bye